Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. on that note. Hi. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jessica Rust. I'm the director of pastoral care here at South Fellowship. So that means I get to help respond to the needs of our church and our community, whatever those might look like. And it means that today I get to continue our Advent series. If you're not super familiar with the season of Advent, you're still kind of learning what it is. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, which this year includes Christmas Eve where we get to practice slowing down and anticipating the coming of the Messiah, just in a reflection of how the people of Israel anticipated the coming of their Messiah. The writer Bobby Gross says about Advent, like them, talking about the prophets, we open our eyes to the darkness around us and lament the suffering in the world. We cry out for God to come and put the world right. Thus, we're looking for the second advent of Christ, his return in glory. While our culture mounts its consuming frenzy, we wait quietly for the coming of the Christ. The whole season of Advent is run through with this theme of expectation. And even if Advent is new or new-ish to you, the idea of expectation around Christmas and the holidays isn't new. That's something we walk in every year. Maybe your expectations are hopeful and exciting about traditions and memories that you're going to create, about time with family and people that you love. Maybe your expectations are that you're gonna have a fun, old-fashioned family Christmas (laughs) before your turkey explodes, and hopefully it won't. That's probably not what you're expecting. Maybe your expectations are that things are actually going to go right this year. Everything is gonna fall into place. Everyone's gonna show up somewhere on time. It's all going to work this time. Maybe Thanksgiving already destroyed any expectations that you had (laughs) that Christmas is gonna go well and you are just holding on until January gets here. Maybe whatever your expectations were, Your reality is centered a little bit more around loss and grief and disappointment and overwhelm right now. So when we come into church in the Advent season, and we hear about the themes that we're engaging with every week of hope and peace and joy and love, those might feel like one more big expectation that's being placed on you, to be hopeful and joyful and peaceful and loving. Maybe especially with this week's theme of joy, there might be a lot of pressure to at least look and act the part so God and everyone else thinks that you have it together enough. And that can be a really heavy burden to carry. I don't know about you, but when someone tells me how to feel, it doesn't actually make me feel that way. (laughs) Um, I actually, hate when someone tells me to rejoice or choose joy or its cousin idea practice gratitude. 
Um, and it's not that any of those things are bad. <laughs> and I do actually practice gratitude. I'm not telling you not to practice gratitude. But what I receive when someone says those things to me, whether in person or like on the internet, it's not encouragement, which is usually what is actually intended, it's dismissal. Like what they're seeing is that my problems aren't actually problems, I'm just the problem. And if I just changed my attitude or tried a different practice or believed more in the promises of scripture or was just like a better person, um, then everything would be fine. But that's not really how the experience of our life works. It's not how my experience of life has worked. And a good part of my job is to spend almost every day listening to how our church and our community is struggling and suffering and scared and just tired and bringing a message of joy into those very real experiences doesn't always feel like a gift. Sometimes it just feels heavy. And I think one of the reasons why joy can feel heavy sometimes is because we have a really hard time talking about what joy even is. Joy as a word is everywhere right now. It's in our lobby. Oh, oops, it's not on that slide, but it's in our lobby. <laughs> right over there on the top of the fireplace. It's on pillows. It's on coffee mugs. It was on my Starbucks cup as I was writing the sermon. <laughs> it's on my neighbor's light display on top of his roof. It's in a million other places and examples that I could have put up there, but didn't just because I you know, didn't want to take up the whole sermon talking about that. But how do we even define it? It's so ubiquitous a word that it's almost like it's lost any kind of meaning. Is joy a feeling? Is it like the highest, biggest, boldest form of happiness? Is it like a warm, fuzzy glow? I think whatever we might say about joy, if we really had to say something, something is true for all of us at least a good portion of the time. By default, we act as if joy is circumstantial. We have joy if things are going well, and we don't have joy if they aren't. We tend to view joy as if it's an ornament. It's beautiful, right? but it's fragile. I can't throw it, I can't drop it. One wrong move and it's gone. Or if I forget it's here and step on it later, it will be gone. <laughs> and we view joy the same way. Something shifts, whether it's big and life altering like a loss, a divorce, or financial insecurity, or something a little bit more ordinary and mundane like changing plans or someone cutting us off on Broadway on the way here this morning, and our joy is shattered. But when we talk about joy at Advent, and when the Bible talks about joy, we're taking a slightly different perspective. It's not that joy as a feeling shaped by circumstances has absolutely no truth to it. It's just that that's not the fuller picture of what it is. So what is the fuller picture? Um, the author Henry Nowen says that joy is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing can take God away from us. This is a picture of joy as a practice rooted in our knowledge of God's character and action. 
C.S. Lewis, who famously titled his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, talks about joy um, as almost like a signpost. Inexorably, joy proclaimed, you want. I myself am your want of something other, outside, not you or any state of you. This is joy as a lens into a bigger picture of what reality is. What um, the author and priest Tishers and Warren calls sacramental reality, a vision of reality infused with God's holiness and presence and action. And the Bible um, kind of molds both of these pictures together. And in scripture, joy really seems to be more of an outflow or a reaction to and a reflection of who God is and what he's done and what he will do and how that shapes how we walk in the world. So in Advent, we aren't being commanded to perform joy so that God and other people will think that we are doing it right and we're enough. We're being invited to reflect and proclaim the source of our joy that already exists. God, his actions, and his character. So that brings us to our passage for this morning, Isaiah 61, one through four and eight through 11. Um, If you have your Bible or your favorite app, go ahead and turn there. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. But there is also a lot here. There's a lot of layers and a lot that's easy to miss if we have no idea of what's come before it. The book of Isaiah is a prophetic book um, written and spoken to the people of Judah when they were still ruled by kings, but beset by other more powerful nations who threatened their own existence as a nation, like Dan talked about last week. But a bigger threat to the people of Judah is the people themselves and their disobedience and their failure to live as God has commanded them to live. So the outcome of that, as prophesied by Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets, is going to be judgment. 
and exile. Seeing their homes, their families, the temple, every marker that they had of their identity as a people, destroyed, wiped away, removed from their home, and taken to another culture, another city and country, for some of them to never return. But Isaiah and the rest of the prophets say, exile and judgment isn't the end of the story. Deliverance and restoring is the end of the story. Um, Earlier in Isaiah, he's talked about a figure called the suffering servant, identified with Messiah, who will restore and deliver his people in an ultimate sense. So we get to Isaiah 61, and all of a sudden we have someone on the scene saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Into devastation and a broken people, God has sent someone. Uh, The anointed one, it seems an interpretation, is best identified with the suffering servant. They're not named the same way, um, but throughout the suffering servant passages, especially Isaiah 42 and 49 and this chapter 61, they have the same language, they have the same themes, and they have pretty much the same outcomes. What are those outcomes? Good news, binding up the brokenhearted, freedom, release from darkness, the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to what's known as the year of Jubilee. First mentioned in Leviticus 25, it was a command from God to his people Israel that every 50 years, they were to set aside that year and live in a different way. They were going to set free any slaves that they owned, return any land that had been purchased from people who were just financially desperate and could not afford to hold on to what belonged to their family. It was supposed to go back to them. They weren't supposed to farm anything. They were supposed to just let the land rest, all in a picture of God's heart and compassion and freedom. And there's a lot of debate among scholars as to whether or not Israel actually obeyed and did the year of Jubilee at any point. But what matters is that what's happening here is the year of Jubilee coming to fruition. And not just in those specific ways from Leviticus, but in every aspect of society. There's economic justice. There's um, a change in status. There's transformation. The people will be called oaks of righteousness. This is a reference back to Isaiah 130, where God has said, that because of their disobedience and idolatry, the people of Judah will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. But here, in a people of God living as God has commanded and intended, they're not dying, they're flourishing. They're strong, they're steadfast and stable. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Communities are being restored. What has been wrong and wrong for a long, long time, for generations, is being set right. And when we read a passage like scripture like this, we might be tempted to just land here because it so reflects what we already long for and what our world already longs for. We long for someone, anyone, but maybe especially God, to see our grief and our woundedness and our brokenness and our longing and to do something about it, 
to bind up those wounds, to comfort us, as Dan talked about last week, to restore our communities and our families. And when we see this happening, as is promised in this passage, that's great. And we wanna just keep going over it and over it and over it. But as good as these outcomes are, this is not why Isaiah says we have cause for joy. This is not the point. God is the point. In verses eight and nine, he makes it clear that everything that's happened in one through four is happening because I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. God tells us who he is all throughout scripture. And in this passage, he's emphasizing he's God of justice and faithfulness. And it's because he is a God of justice and faithfulness that he has set all of this in motion. All the restoration and the transformation and the hope. It's because he is a God of faithfulness that he has restored his people. He has sent the anointed one as he promised. It's not because they're particularly great. It was because in this context of their own disobedience and idolatry that they got sent into exile in the first place. But because God is who he is, he does not give up on his people and does not give up on us and he makes an everlasting covenant with them. An everlasting reminder that they are his people and he will be their God. And the response to this is joy. Verse 10 um, switches from God speaking to a first person speaker. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes a sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases the very first part of these verses in the message. I will sing for joy in God, explode in praise from deep in my soul. God's people who were exiled, felt abandoned, rebelled, disobeyed, did all the wrong things, not just little mistakes, but like all the wrong things have been restored. And their response is to overflow in praise. The language here is all language of abundance and celebration, a wedding day, a garden overflowing with plants everywhere. The response is joy. And joy, acted out here, is to live in righteousness, to praise, and to acknowledge and speak what God has done. So what does all of this mean for us and how we understand and practice joy? Well, at temptation, when we read passages of scripture, maybe especially the Old Testament, where there's distance between us and the original context, especially if we don't really see a reflection of our experience in the text, is to lean into that distance, leave it where it is, and move on. And think that there's just nothing really here for us, and I'm gonna skip on to something else. But the thing about biblical prophecy 
is that there are multiple fulfillments to it. There's an initial fulfillment and a secondary or even a final fulfillment. And we find a secondary fulfillment in this passage in Luke 4, when Jesus walks into a synagogue in Nazareth, reads this passage, and says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. These words aren't some unattainable experience that God meant just for Israel. Jesus claims them for himself and all who are part of his people. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah, God in the flesh, coming into our world and setting all of this in motion in a way that will be finally fulfilled when he comes again in glory. And this is our reason for joy, that we have a God who sees our brokenness and our heartbreak and our captivity, all that is wrong in the world and in us ourselves. And he came anyway. He sets it all right in a way that we ourselves could never hope to do. We can't set the captives free in an ultimate way. We can't rebuild our societies in the exact image we think we would have them be or God would have them be. We can't do it. We can do a sometimes okay job of comforting the people who mourn at best. Not in the way that we long for when we see this scripture, but Jesus can. We follow a God who knows the hopes and the details of our disappointment and our longings, and he comes alongside us, and he binds our wounds, and he is present with us. And he invites us to see the bigger picture and step in with him to the bigger picture of how he's working in this world and setting all things right. This joy is not fragile. This joy is as firm as the foundation of our faith. Jesus Christ. Jesus remains regardless of our circumstances. And that doesn't mean that the pain isn't real. It doesn't mean that our situations change and our circumstances change. I don't think it even has to mean that we walk around with a smile and pep in our step, acting like everything's okay. Because tears and joy can coexist at the same time it does mean that we have a bigger hope and we have a bigger end than those circumstances. And because of that, we can affirm our cause to joy. Um, Tish Harrison Warren, who I quoted before, reminds us that joy in the midst of darkness should never be faked or performed, but it can be chosen. And it is a vulnerable and courageous choice. And I think it matters that choosing joy is so much more than just choosing an attitude or leaning in to a particular feeling. Choosing joy in the end is choosing a person. It's choosing Jesus. And we can remember as we're encouraged to choose joy that the source of our joy has already chosen us. God in the flesh, coming into our world and our brokenness to take on our sin, to die on a cross, to be raised to life in a preview of what is to come. 
to invite us into that, to clothe us with a garment of salvation as was already said in Isaiah 61.10. So what does it mean to walk in this joy? I think what it means is to do what Isaiah's already done, to praise, to reflect and remember and remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and who he is and the reasons that we have for joy. Two weeks ago, um, at the start of the series, Alex invited us to write down your stories of how God has already shown his faithfulness in your life, and then take it out and reread it throughout the season. If you did that, maybe today is the day for you to take it out and remind yourself again. If you never did that, and you've totally forgot he said anything about it, uh, now's your opportunity. (laughs) Maybe do that today. But you know what? Sometimes when we're in a season where our souls and our bodies and our minds are just exhausted, we don't have our own words. Writing anything down feels like too much. And that's okay. Sometimes for a season, we need to borrow someone else's words. So maybe instead of writing down your own story, pray through a psalm. Maybe especially a psalm of lament getting into all of the doubts and struggle and pain, but ending in joy. Maybe you sing a Christmas carol or some favorite Christmas songs. Maybe you read through Isaiah 61 each day or a different piece of scripture. But before we end, there's something else about this verse and about joy that I think we need to understand. So we're gonna go back to verse nine Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. And verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The action of God and the joy of his people isn't just for the people of God. Everything God does in Isaiah 61 and everything he's doing all throughout history is so that the whole world, all the people will come to know him and who he is. Way back in Genesis 12, when God blesses Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Blessed to be a blessing. Joy isn't just for me to hold tight and treasure and enjoy myself. Joy isn't just for you or your households, or us, our community, as Self Fellowship Church. We share joy so the world will know who our Savior is. We've been learning from uh, the Sermon on the Mount this fall, and let's remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither two people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
One of our three pathways that we talk about here at South is that we would be a church that our community and our world would miss if we were gone. To shine our light before others, to help others see the firm foundation of our joy and a world that is so hungry for something solid and unchanging and a world that is hungry for Jesus. Maybe sharing this joy this week looks like inviting someone to Christmas Eve on Sunday. Maybe it looks like actually sharing the gospel with someone. Maybe it looks like doing something to bind up the brokenhearted in your life. Attend to the poor, show a glimpse of freedom to someone in captivity, a tangible expression of the way in the heart of Jesus. Maybe there's something that God is putting on your heart even now that I have no idea of. And I pray that for each of us, he would put something on our heart, some way to share joy, and that he would give us the courage to follow through. So let's practice walking in joy together as we sing one more song. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.